0: There we go. Okay. While everybody is settling down, um, about the only announcement I am aware of is that Barb is sneaking down to the first front row. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Uh, the other, It's on February the 5th, on Sunday, February the 5th, we're going to have our annual congregational meeting, and so if you are a member, we I'm not sure what if anything specific we have to vote on if I can get this thing fixed Um, but we're going to uh, meet and so if you are a member then you have uh, opportunity to vote if there's something to vote on and also if you're not a member we encourage you to attend just so you know the business of the church and what's going on and you're informed as to um, just what's happening. Uh, I will be leaving to go to Kiev, Ukraine on the 15th of February. The first Sunday, uh, Tommy Ice will be here. He'll actually be here for a Thursday night, Sunday morning, and Tuesday night. And then the next Sunday, uh, Bill Katz, missionary with Chosen People Ministries, is going to be here. He's the one who did the Seder presentation at the Chafer Conference last year and so he'll be speaking on that particular Sunday and I'll let you know who's doing what the other nights uh, while I'm gone but that's that's pretty much it for, for announcements hmm that's right we have men's prayer breakfast thank you Bert we have men's prayer breakfast this Saturday morning here at 730 if you haven't come we encourage you to come and we ha- always have some good conversation and encouragement with other men and it's been uh, exciting every now and then some new person comes, and they they enjoy it, have a good time, and next thing you know, they're regular. So we uh, we have a good, good start on Saturday mornings. Uh, fellowship around the Word and time in prayer together as the men of the church. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're thankful for this time that we have to gather together, uh, meeting weekly, twice a week, in the middle of the week and Sunday, to be encouraged and strengthened by your word. We're so grateful for the tremendous uh, uh, technology we have that makes it available around the world and uh, stored so people can listen at their convenience whenever they can. And, Father, we recognize that the purpose for this is to grow spiritually, to deepen our relationship with you, grow closer to you, learn how we are to think as Christians, as human beings created in your image and likeness, and as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who are being conformed to his image. Father, let us not lose sight of what the mission is for us spiritually to grow and mature, and to let God the Holy Spirit transform us, uh, putting to death the deeds of our sin nature, and seeing God the Holy Spirit revamp our lives according to your word. And then taking that uh, as part of that whole process, we take your word uh, to the world around us, demonstrating and being a testimony of your grace. And Father, as we continue our study in Samuel, help us to understand more and more about these dynamics of living in the devil's world and exhibiting your grace and your goodness to those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight we're back in 1 Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 22 because uh, we took the last uh, two or three weeks to look at Psalm 34. Psalm 34 was what David uh, wrote as a result of the situation circumstances at the end of chapter 21 when he fled to to Gath and uh, faked uh, insanity in order to survive, realizing that there was a lot more to that than what is recorded in the narrative in 1 Samuel 21 verses 10 through 15. Now we're going to see the same kind of thing as we get into this section in chapter 22 because there are two psalms that are related to what is going on in this chapter. And so we'll go through the chapter tonight, and then we'll spend the next couple of weeks looking at the psalms. As David reflects upon what happened, we we get insight into those internal dynamics. How do we think when we're facing these circumstances and situations? How are we to uh, pray about them? How are we to reflect upon them? And what is our mental attitude to be in the midst of these kinds of circumstances and and situations? And so it's helpful to to merge the narrative of 1 Samuel with those insights that we get uh, from David's Psalms that he writes during this particular time. What we see in chapter 22 is that we're continuing the story, the narrative of David in isolation, David in the wilderness, David being persecuted uh, by Saul. So he is uh, being persecuted by the divinely ordained and established and anointed king, uh, King Saul, uh, who is a Benjamite, and we're going to learn lessons here in three areas— First of all, we learned lessons related to God's tests and the testing of our faith. Secondly, we're going to see some lessons related to divine guidance and the will of God. And third, we're going to see some lessons related to authority, submission to authority, and parameters for uh, reacting or rebelling to authority. So there's something here to step on everybody's toes, okay, So and to encourage us. So we get the background in 1 Samuel chapter 22, uh, starting in verse 1. And before we get there, I want you to think about this almost like a play or a television show where you're shifting scenes. First, you focus on one character. You focus on David. Then you focus on Saul. Then there's a focus on... Um, uh, Abimelech, And then the, the focus is on Doeg. And so you're shifting to different people. And in some cases, you're shifting scenes back and forth. And it builds the drama. This is extremely well written, uh, well written narrative to capture interest and to teach through example about the spiritual life. Now, in the Old Testament, there were some differences in the spiritual life. They didn't have the indwelling of the, or the filling of the Holy Spirit. But the general principles here in terms of trusting God and also making wise decisions from the doctrine in our own soul are very important. So what happens at the end of chapter 21 Is that David has faked being insane in in the city of Gath, where he fled. City of Gath was a Philistine stronghold. It was the home of Goliath, and he went there because he thought this would be the last place in the world that Saul would uh, would seek him. We saw that God protected him, uh, and that he handled his fears, which are not revealed here, but are in Psalm thirty four. handled his fears by trusting in God, and God provided. Uh, for him and delivered him uh, through that uh, time when his life was indeed threatened now he leaves there and we're told in chapter 22 verse 1 David therefore departed from there that would be Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam So when his brothers and all his uh, father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So there's two thoughts there in the first verse. The first uh, tells us of a geographical relocation, and the second part tells us about uh, this dynamic of people gathering themselves to David for security and for protection, and it starts with with his family. Now here we have a map. This is the central area of Judea or Judah in the Old Testament here. We have Jerusalem up here, uh, which is about uh, 30 miles or less from the Dead Sea to Jerusalem. Uh, Nob, I wouldn't put it quite in that location. I'd put it a little bit closer in here, was uh, located on uh, Mount Scopus, and uh, where we believe that location of Nob, this is where the priests lived, and remember, the there, there is an altar of some sort up here at Ramah, which is where Samuel lives, which is just about three miles from uh, Gibeah of Saul. So these, uh, it's right up, uh, right very close to the H, right in this area. So uh, all of this is very close together, easily uh, within an hour's walk of each other. David fled uh, to Nob because Saul is out to kill him. So he heads to Nob. And then he went from there to Gath, moving out of the highlands down into what's called the Shephelah or the coastal area to one of the cities of the Philistines uh, for to escape and to hide out from Saul. Now he leaves there and he heads back to the uh, east and he is going to hide out in the hill country this is a really interesting uh, terrain here it's an area that is today called Bait Gouvrine, and it there are a lot of caves it's a lot like the a lot of limestone caverns that you have in the hill country in, in Texas where uh, you can hide out and so in one of those caves we don't know exactly which one it would be this is where David and others who are gathering themselves to them are, are hiding out uh, when On one of our tour groups, we went to Beit Guvrin. It was a place later on where the priesthood built uh, dovecoats. And this is a place where they raised uh, doves that would be used in the sacrifices in the temple. And you walk into these caverns, and they're enormous. They're, they're, and they were filled with, uh, you know, you could house a uh, 100 people or more. Inside uh, each of these each of these caves, he's going to leave from there and he's going to head uh, over across the Dead Sea. He'll come around the south and go to the area that's across the Dead Sea, which is Moab, and then he returns from there to uh, this area and the forest of, of Herod at that time, and we'll get into that in the text, but that gives you a geographical orientation. so what we see here taking place is that uh, Adullam is uh, um, located about, or that area is just a few miles, maybe two or three miles from um, from the Valley of Elah, where David fought Goliath. And it's about 10 miles uh, east or southeast from, from the town of Gath, where David had hidden out, and it is here that he... Um, he accumulates numerous people. And according to some estimates, some of these caves are so large that you could put four or 500 people in a cave. And no one outside the cave would ever know that so many people were living uh, inside the cave. And what we see here is that during this time that people are... uh, fleeing to David for protection the government is in a state of collapse because it is being led by someone who is in rebellion against God and so it is a picture of a tyranny it is a picture of a government that is in rebellion against its own law and it is a picture of a gov- of a king who is intentionally attempting to kill to murder uh, his successor. And all of that feeds into a very important narrative for us, is that how does the Bible describe uh, that Christians, that believers should respond to unjust and wicked authority? And we're going to learn some lessons here. We live in a time today, as we've come out of the current administration in Washington, D.C., when there were such uh, Uh, assaults made against constitutional law. And I was just told I didn't see it today, but that uh, in the hearings for Jeff Sessions for Attorney General that um, Senator Ted Cruz from Texas uh, went through an exhaustive list of all of the ways in which President Obama and the Attorney General's office uh, sought to violate circumvent uh, the Constitution and again and again and again and the question has has been raised many times what do you do when there's a government out of control and you've got a government here with Saul that is much more out of control uh, than we have seen in this in this country so or at least they're arguably the same. Maybe maybe uh, this uh, Saul was much, much worse in his revolt against the Mosaic Law. And so people, the economy's collapsed. And so people are looking for some kind of place to go where they can have safety because who knows what the government will do against them. And they are going to David because the word is out that David is the Lord's anointed. And so they are seeking protection from the Lord, and they see that protection should be uh, should be with him. we're told that this first group that seems to collect around him are his brothers and his father's house, and they went down there to him. And in the next verse, in verse 2, we read, Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented... Gathered to him now this isn 't just somebody who's moderately discontented; it is somebody who is having their their livelihood and everything about their life completely upended because of government policy. Everyone who is in distress this is an interesting word that we have in the um, interesting word that we have in the Hebrew, and it means a lot more than I think distress is a mild word. they were in in chaos. They were in a tremendous calamity. And we see that this is um, mentioned in some places. In Jeremiah 19.9, there's a description of the people in the uh, judgment generation before 586, after two invasions of a foreign power uh, of Babylon. Uh, In Jeremiah, they're described as being desperate. Desperate, They've lost their life savings. They're going into famine. Uh, the cover, the, the uh, economy has totally collapsed. Uh, that tells you what desperate is. They are losing everything. It's like Germany in the 1920s when they had uh, just rampant inflation and nobody had any kind of security or, or future. Another place where this word is used is in Psalm 119, verse 143 where David probably wrote this. It could have been somebody else. Trouble and anguish, there's our same word, anguish here, have overtaken me. It is someone who is losing all hope, someone who is desperate for stability, doesn't know where they're going to eat, where they might live, how their family is going to survive, how their children are going to survive. They're seeing the whole culture around them on the edge of absolute Uh, absolute collapse and yet the second strophe in this verse gives us the solution the solution isn't in government the solution isn't in a political candidate or a political party the solution isn't in a a return to constitutional law because that's only superficial solutions the real solution has to do with the real problem which is always spiritual and the real solution is expressed Uh, by the psalmist is yet your commandments are my delights it is the word of god and the word of god alone that will change the culture we can change those superficial characteristics of a culture by changing the president changing uh, the government changing who's in washington but that doesn't mean that it's going to change the culture Because the only thing that changes the culture is the way people think. The only thing that changes the culture is the the people who are changing their focus from living on their own narcissistic sin nature whims and living for themselves to living for something outside of themselves and living to glorify God. And so it's only when we have God's Word in our heart that we're going to change and that others can change and that that's going to transform uh transform the culture. So we see uh, that everybody's in distress. I think this relates to an emotional state they are in anguish, they are in desperation, uh they're in distress. Uh everyone who is in debt, they have been hit with financial hardship and collapse. And they are unhappy, they're discontented because there's no stability, there's no future for them, and so they look to someone who can provide leadership, and so they begin to gather themselves uh, around David and David demonstrates leadership, he becomes a captain over them, and he begins to organize them and uh, uh, under and there's about four hundred men there, and this is really a picture. Of the church, and as David is a type or a an image, a pattern of the Messiah, so these are a pattern of church age believers. We're the outcasts. We are the people who are not socially acceptable. We were a basket of deplorables before Hillary made it famous. <laughs> That's how the world looks at us. That's what Paul said in First Corinthians. We were fools in the eyes of, of the world. And so the world looks at us as just another uh, ir- group of irrelevant people because we are not following their uh, their value system. Yet we are being organized around our the captain of our salvation, and he is organizing us and training us and preparing us to be the cadre for his administration when he returns to establish the kingdom. And that's part of the mission for every believer today. That's why ultimately, ultimately in a long-term way, why we grow spiritually, why we try to pass the tests of our spiritual life today is because we are being trained. We're going through boot camp and ranger school and special ops and all of these other kinds of training situations in order to prepare us for those situations that we'll be uh, directing and leading in when the Lord comes and establishes his kingdom. And we will be reigning with him as, as kings and priests, according to According to Revelation, so this is the picture here that we see from David. David is is the anointed future king, but he's not authorized to exercise that authority yet because there is a uh, a, a rebel on the throne, and that's and in this way, Saul. Even though I believe Saul was a believer, Saul is being used in in here as a type or a pattern of Satan, and so David is like Jesus living in the devil's world, and these who are following him, his mighty men, these are uh, living in the devil's world and learning how to live and trust in God so that they will be prepared for that future, uh, future administration. So this is a picture of, of the church as the outcast from the world seeking refuge in Christ. Now, what we see is a way David thinks through solutions here. Now, think about this. What we see in the writer of Samuel is he doesn't tell us all the details we would like to know. He gives us enough to where he can support his narrative of what he's trying to show about David being the godly king, uh, God's anointed, and that only through God's Messiah can culture and people be transformed that's part of his his message and his theme so david is here put yourself in david's shoes David is a leader, and all of a sudden, every day, more and more people are coming to him. And he has his family there, and he has a responsibility to take care of his family, to take care of his parents, to take care of his his brothers, his sisters, take care of er everyone. And so he's thinking, what can I do? Now, that is a legitimate approach to leadership, a good leader not only thinks in terms of what he can do to solve the problems today, but what problems might come up down the road that he needs to address. A leader should always ask, what if Uh, a trap of leadership is to think that things are always going to go well, but then they may not what if, what are we doing to provide for the what ifs, the negative circumstances. You can't predict them exactly, but you can take some general steps, and that's true in families. Fathers, husbands can take those steps, and parents can take those steps in case uh, there's some sort of crisis so that you're prepared. So David is thinking about that, and he makes a decision. Now, I believe that he's making this decision to go to Moab on the basis of what i 've called wisdom uh, wisdom principles uh, it's there's no mention here that David is getting any direct revelation from the Lord, but David doesn't get direct revelation from God for every step there's a real error out there that if you 're going to do god's work god's will, then you pray for every little decision, and god's going to tell you what to do, and that 's just mysticism. God does not have a geographical plan for everybody's life all the time. And you look at the scriptures, and, and you, you look at there are times when God has a geographical plan, but the rest of the time he doesn't. And when he does, he makes sure that you're going to get there. He's not playing some sort of guessing games where he's playing some sort of shell game, and he has his will hidden under a walnut shell, and he moves them all around and says, guess where my will is? God wants you to do his will. He expresses that in his word. And if he's got something that's not expressed in his word, that he's going to organize the circumstances so that you go in the right direction. Now, in 1 Samuel and in the Old Testament, God is still revealing his will to people and specifically to leaders, and David is the anointed king. So David has to make a decision. What am I going to do? How can I best protect my family? So he makes a decision, he says, I need to send them out of the country. They are sitting ducks for Saul's a hostility here in this country. He can think that he can get to me through them, so I need to protect them. And I'm going to send them over to Mizpah of Moab. Now, we don't know where that was exactly. We know where Moab was. It's on the eastern side of the Jordan River, as I pointed out on the map a little while ago. And so he goes over, and he meets with the king of Moab. So this is a pretty significant meeting. You just don't show up off the streets and say, hey, I want to go knock on the uh, fortress of the king and have, a, have an audience. This is, this is high level. It's significant. He has people under his charge, and including his family. And he goes and he negotiates a deal with the king of Moab, and he says, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he knows that eventually God's going to tell him what to do next. But in the meantime, he wants to take care of his parents. So he's making responsible decisions, divine institution number one, responsible decisions under God's uh, revealed will, which is to honor your mother and your father. So there's a lot of different ways he could have done this. And the way he chose to do it was to go to the king of Moab. Why would he go to Moab? Anybody here guess? Yeah, that's right, John. Very good. His great-grandmother Ruth was a Moabitess. So they probably had family and relations on the Moabite side. And so he would take his family over there and seek to protect them there. So he brought them before the king of Moab, verse 4. And they dwelt with him all that all the time that David was in the stronghold. So David is over there a while, we don't know how much time passed, but it's more than a week or two, and he's there for a while, and there's no divine revelation. He's made a wise decision going to Moab. Some people may say, well, he's out of the land, so he's out of God's will. That's just garbage. That's superficial uh, eisegesis reading your opinions into Scripture. He's over. There's nothing negative indicated at all about this decision. He goes there, and he's waiting on the Lord. And then we're told in verse 5, Now the prophet Gad said to David. So now he's getting divine revelation. He's not against it. He's not like Saul. He's not running from God. So the prophet Gad is given orders from God, go to David and give him instructions. And now it's time to leave. And Gad says, don't stay in the stronghold, depart, go to the land of Judah. Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herod. So he's not quite going all the way back to Adullam, but he's going pretty close, and he's going to live in the forest of Herod for a while. So what we see here is that David is going through various kinds of tests, and then as now, these are tests of faith. For God has always tests our faith. And we see how God is moving David through these circumstances. Now, the same thing is true for us. God, in his providential care, moves us through different kinds of situations and circumstances in life. Some are pleasant. Some are not pleasant. Uh, some, but they both can be tests because a test is anything that puts us in a situation where we have to apply doctrine or not apply doctrine. And so David is going to be taken by God just as G- the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be t- tested by the devil. So David is going to be brought back into the land under the that's under the authority of now evil King Saul, and God is going to test him again. This is part of his spiritual growth. The same kind of thing happens to each one of us, and most of the time we don't like it. So we have to look, I want to look at a couple of passages in the New Testament that we need to be reminded of. First of all, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that there is no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. This is talking about categories of testing. We're all tested in all categories just as Jesus was. We mostly fail. Uh, Jesus was 100% successful demonstrating that he was qualified to go to the cross. Uh, Paul says, no testing has overtaken you as such as is common to man. And remember, in 1013, when when Paul says this, he's coming out of that introductory part of those first seven or eight verses where he talks about the these events in the Old Testament were given as an example to us that we could learn from them. So the t- testing that he has in mind here isn't abstract. He's thinking contextually about the testing that came on the Israelites coming out of Egypt, going through the um, going through the wilderness and the conquest of the land. He's thinking in terms of these Old Testament situations, and so he's applying that to his readers and saying, "There's no testing except as common to man." You see all these examples in the Old Testament. But God is faithful, always and ever. He always goes to the character of God. The faithfulness of God is related to a couple of different things. It's related to his integrity, because in his integrity, he is always going to be consistent with that which is just and that which is right. It's related to his his omniscience, because not only is God always just and right, but because God is the only one who knows all the details. He knows every fact in every case, in every situation. He's the only one who can make a true and right judgment. This is what uh, Abraham referred to back in Genesis uh, chapter 17 when he said, rhetorically, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, of course. God is the judge of all the earth and he will always do right. So his faithfulness is related to his righteousness and his justice. It's related to his omniscience because he knows everything, every detail. He knows exactly what the right thing to do is and when the right thing to do it is going to be. And he is uh, immutable. He never changes. He is steadfast. That's another word that's used in the Old Testament. Related to his faithfulness, he honors his covenant. And that brings in another word that we're going to look at when we uh, come back next week in Psalm Psalm 52, that God is uh, talking about the faithfulness of God forever. He His chesed, His faithful, loyal love. All of those tie together and are part of this concept we talk about in terms of God's faithfulness. And He's faithful because He's faithful to us, and He will not allow us to be tested beyond our ability he 's going to give us more than you think you can handle, but not more than he knows you can handle, because he knows that he 's already given you everything you need to handle it the sufficiency of god 's grace he 's given you the holy spirit he 's given you the word of God, and so you've you 've figured all of this this out uh, that 's where the solution is to any test so he 's not going to test us beyond our ability but will with the testing make a way of escape now that really doesn't mean you're going to get away from it but the way of escape is to avoid the stress and the negative repercussions from our sin nature that would come if we handled it on our own so that we can escape uh, we will be able to bear it we'll be able to endure it this is the same idea that's developed in the first part of James. We'll be. In, looking at a number of cross-references to James this week and next week in Psalm 52. James 1-2 says, My brethren, count it. Hegeomai means to consider it, to think it through. And when you think through and you stop and you're in the midst of a testing situation, you're upset, you're worried, you're angry, you're anxious, all of those negative emotions or you're jealous or you're envious, um, all those things when you stop and you think biblically, not think rationally, that's not that thinking biblically is irrational, it's that rationalism starts with your with with your brain or common sense. Our empiricism starts with experience. We have to think biblically, which starts with the Bible. We apply logic to our understanding of the scripture. We think about it, he my, and we realize that this is to be joy. We go through this, it's difficult, but God is training us to be able to handle the circumstances and situations that will come our way when we are uh, co-heirs with Jesus Christ and ruling and reigning with him. So uh, he says, count it all joy when you fall into, it's an unexpected ter- term that indicates something that's unexpected, various trials, they have all kinds of different, different uh Uh, different uh, attributes different uh, characteristics because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and endurance will have its end result Uh, this is my own translation of the greek text endurance will have its end result that you may be mature and complete so if you want to be mature and complete then you have to develop endurance and to develop endurance you have to go through testing It's just how it works you can't avoid it that's the way god god built things and so we go through the testing of our faith that's testing the doctrine that we have in our soul testing what we have learned and so that produces spiritual maturity and then god tells us if you lack wisdom wisdom in bible is in in the bible is the skill to apply the bible to our test and we're thinking I don't know how to handle this. Okay, God gives a solution. That's through prayer. And so you pray, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally. God is generous. He's going to give you more information via the word of God than you'll know what to do. The issue is now your volition, divine institution number one. Are you going to respond and apply the word as you should? Or are you going to say, No, that's not how I want to do it? That's how most people, most of us are. We say, No, nah, I'm going to try my way four or five, six hundred times. And then we might say, Okay, I'm going to give God a shot. And that lasts for five minutes. And then we're back trying to do it our way. But that's how we are. So, James 1 5, if you lack wisdom, pray ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's a promise. Let him ask of God, and it will be given to him. That is a promise. That's not a proverb. That is a definite promise. So it's a great promise to learn. It doesn't mean that God's going to give you the information to pass your chemistry final or your algebra final the next day. I tried that when I was a junior in high school, and it worked okay on the chemistry test. At least I passed the course, but I in In those days in in um in h i s d if you scored below fifty on a final, it doesn't matter how high your average was, you automatically failed the course and I had a b minus average and I made a forty nine on an algebra final because i spent all i stayed up all night studying for chem for the chemistry final, which I passed so. Anyhow, made my dad happy because when he was when I was sixteen I was repeating algebra, and when he was sixteen he was tutoring calculus at the University of Houston. I didn't get that gene, but but you know that. So we lack wisdom, that skill for application of doctrine. It's not how to pass algebra chemistry finals. First Samuel twenty two six then goes on to say when Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. See, the scene shifts now. So scene one is the first five verses, and that's talking about what's happening with David. Now we're going to shift to what's going on back in Gibeah of Saul what's going back in the capital for now where the king is living, and what is happening with his uh, machinations against David. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, and then we're told now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah. So Gibeah seems to be a little bit of a broader term and it was sort of regional or territory and Ramah is, is the village where, where Samuel lives. And so he's under a tamarisk tree in Ramah. He's ready for battle. He's pictured with his spear in his hand. And all of his servants standing around him, they are, uh, they are ready for action. And then he says to his servants, uh, here now, you Benjamites. And he is getting ready to just blister them. He is angry. He continues to be out of fellowship. When you're out of fellowship, you can't ever be really happy. Life is being frustrated, especially if God is the one who's stopping you from achieving what you think you ought to achieve. And he just gives them a reaming out. Here now, you Benjamins. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Is he going to put two cars in every garage and give everybody a... Uh, widescreen, 55-inch uh, LED television and free cable for a year. Uh, you got to upgrade the chicken in every pot and all of that kind of stuff. Is he going to be a great politician and give you everything? So he's attacking uh, David. He understands David is his political opposition. He said, well, the son of Jesse, give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds. Even though this is from the mouth of Saul, there is a lesson there that we ought to be uh, cautious about electing any kind of leader who promises to give us things. But guess what? People will always fall for it. The government can't give us anything because the government doesn't produce anything. If the government gives you anything, it's only because it's taken it from somebody who did produce it. And if somebody did produce something and the government comes along and takes it, that's called thievery or robbery or socialism or communism. Uh, but it isn't biblical and it isn't ethical. So we start getting into a, a little few gover- uh, government-related applications and observations here. So uh, Saul is making a valid point, but he's using it to attack the people because they're loyal to david or they're shifting their are loyal to david and now he just blasts them in in verse eight he says all of you have conspired against me well that's not true but but he's he's exaggerating he Oh, he's got poor meat syndrome. Saul is throwing a pity party here, and everybody's against me. Everybody's conspired against me. And even my own family, my own son, has gone out and made a covenant with David, which is true. But then everything else he says about it is completely wrong. So he says there's... Uh, all of you have conspired against me, and there's no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. Woe is me. And there's not one of you who is sorry for me or re- reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. Is that true? Not at all um Jonathan was not stirring anybody up against Saul. David wasn't stirring anybody up against Saul. He's accusing David here of being a rebel, and David is not being a rebel. So this feeds the doctrine of rebellion in the Scripture, and rebellion in the Scripture is wrong. And we really see a great picture of it here. And we're living in a time when there are so many different viewpoints and you have a lot of political frustration. Frankly, I think the political frustration being expressed on the left right now after the election of Donald Trump is much worse than the, than the political frustration that was expressed by those on the right during the last eight years. The shoe's on the other foot and they can't handle it. It's tough. And you still have, we have celebrities who want to have their political rants and have their their pity party and throw their little temper tantrums. And then you have others in the celebrity culture who are telling them to shut up and just focus on your art and do the right thing. That's what we pay you for. All this kind of stuff is going on. Um, And it's what happens when people are totally dominated by their sin nature and there's no sense of absolutes or external uh, external absolutes or some sort of external standard that they can conform to and so we see this in in saul and he's um, he's accusing them also of the kind of thing that he would do and we often see that in politics where you will see one side often accuse. The other side of doing exactly what they are doing or what they would like to do, and that's what what Saul would do is he would rather stir up everybody against David, which is exactly what he's trying to do in this little rant, than uh, having people, um, than than having people follow him. So he's he's trying to stir them up against David and create uh, all of this antagonism, and he accuses uh, him. Uh, 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 David related to this covenant with his son Jonathan uh, and no one's revealed this to me that they've stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day now that's the accusation now it's going to be a few weeks before we get there but what's going to happen in a couple of chapters is that Saul's going to go into a cave at En Gedi to relieve himself not knowing that David and his mighty men are hiding in that cave And so David is right there when Saul goes in, and David could easily reach out and just eviscerate Saul with just one swipe of his sword or his dagger, and that isn't going to happen because David recognizes he is the Lord's anointed, and no matter how bad he's been, David has no right to take his life. And so David is just going to cut off a little hem of his garment. So David is, in fact, as it were, in an ambush situation, even though he hasn't deigned to set up the ambush. And so that's going to prove the lie of what uh, Saul is saying here. Uh, So David is accusing, uh, I mean, Saul is accusing David of lying in wait. And so then the scene is going to shift here. Uh, We get to verse 9. And after he's accused everybody, there's one guy in the crowd that says, wait a minute, these guys may be a bunch of losers, but I'm the loyal one. And he's not Jewish. He's not an Israelite. His name is Doeg. We were introduced to him ever so briefly in chapter 21. When David went to Nob in order to get food, we're told that Doeg the Edomite was there. And there's nothing much said about Doeg. He's just introduced back in verse 7 of chapter 21 that as David goes to get bread from Abimelech the priest and Abimelech gives him bread, we're told in verse 7, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. We don't know why or what that was about. I pointed that out when we went through there. And his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. So he's got a cabinet-level position over all the livestock that's owned by, by Saul. So he's not just some flunky that's there He is, or some foot soldier. He's a significant person who has a position of power in Saul's government, and he is an Edomite. Now, remember, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. The line of the blessing went from Abraham to his son Isaac. Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau was called, the, uh, called red. He had uh, uh, reddish features, and he also sold his birthright for red lentils, so he was called red. We often have people with that kind of a nickname today. In Hebrew, that was the word Edom. So that's what they they called him, and Edom is the area uh, that was traditionally given to them on the east side of the Jordan, just north uh, of Moab. So that's where Doag is is from. He is not a a descendant of Israel. He is a descendant of Abraham, but not through the promised seed. And so he pipes up and he says, I saw the son of Jesse going to Noab, to Ahimelech, Uh, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. I think I've been mispronouncing Ahimelech all night as Abimelech, but it's Ahimelech. And he inquired of the Lord for him. That is, Doeg is accusing Ahimelech of going before the Lord to discern God's will for David. Now, Saul could and will treat that as, as a treasonous action. That's really going to anger Saul. But what we're going to see is that did not happen. He is falsely accused by Doeg. He inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions. That's true. Notice it's typical to mix truth with error. And it's always important to analyze whatever politicians and the government says because they'll mix just enough truth in there to make it uh, seem uh, credible. So he inquired of the Lord, gave him provision, gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. That's true. So now we shift from the uh, report of Doeg to what Saul is going to do and Saul's inordinate reaction. Think of Saul now in the position of the unjust ruler, the unjust king, the tyrant—however you want to uh, picture him. He is worse than George III. Okay, he is in a bad situation here because he's going to murder the priests as part of his his uh, uh, as part of his anger. So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub and all his father's house. These are descendants of the house of Eli. Uh, so, and this is going to end, eventually end the house of Eli, which fulfills the prom- prophecy earlier in 1 Samuel. So the same king sent to call on Ahimelech the priest, the son of Hittub, and all his father's house. The priests were in Nob, and they all came to the king. So this was a large number, uh, around 70 or so. And they come, and they report to Saul, and they all came to the king in verse 12, he calls uh, Ahimelech on the carpet, and he says, "Here now, son of Ahitab, And he responds, Here I am, Lord. Yes, sir. And he comes before Saul, and he answers the king. He answers these charges. And he says to the king, verse 14, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Now, Ahimelech is going to make a tactical error at this point, but it's an honest error and one that many people make, and he is going to answer an irrational, emotional, angry charge with facts. That's actually how we should do it, is to calmly present our case. But we shouldn 't believe that somebody who's irrational and angry and operating on full bore uncontrolled carnality can think logically and rationally and will respond to it. Uh, this often happens. we see this in the courtroom where we where you see people go in and present a a logical well thought out constitutional case for their position, and then somebody who's operating on a socialistic social justice uh, anti-constitution, an anti-American position, throws them out of court, and just ignores all of their arguments. And that's what we're going to see here. Ah, Ahimelech answered the king and said, and who among all your servants is as faithful as David? So point one, David is faithful. You know it. I know it. All the people know it. David has never challenged you. He is not a rebel. Number two, he says, he's your own son-in-law. He's your family. He, he goes at your bidding. Every time you tell him to go here, go there, he does exactly what you say, no matter how difficult it is. Uh, remember getting those uh, uh, Philistine foreskins. No matter how difficult it is, David is going to fulfill the mission. He goes at your bidding, and he's honorable in your house. He is a credit to your family. He has tremendous integrity. So he makes three logical points about David, which just eviscerate Saul's whole argument. And, um, and then he's asked the rhetorical question. He says, did I then begin to inquire of, uh, uh, of God for him? Far be it from me. So he denies that charge. David did not ask me to inquire of the Lord, and I did not. Uh, Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father. This is a false charge. Don't count it uh, against us. For your servants knew nothing of all this, little or much. Now, he's not going to deny feeding him or giving him a sword of Goliath, but he denies that charge because that's the false charge. And the king said, I don't care what your argument is, you're going to die. Now, is this justice? Absolutely not. Is this according to the Mosaic law? Absolutely not. Is the king violating the law of the land? Absolutely. So does that mean that we're justified or David would be justified in getting rid of the king? Not at all. See, that's what flies in the face of a lot of libertarian arguments and a lot of other arguments. They they want to twist Scripture. They want to go to passages like Romans 13 and say that that the the while paul says the authority is ordained of god of god all authority is ordained of god they want to read into that the, the word legitimate all legitimate authority is ordained of god paul, Saul's legitimate but he's He's a worst case scenario in terms of a just ruler. He is completely out of control and carnality, violating the Mosaic law left and right. He's already been, his judgment and discipline's already been announced by Saul, and now he is going to announce a completely unjust uh, uh, punishment, and he is going to then authorize his own men to carry it out. Look at what happens in verse 17. He says, then the king said to the guards who stood about him. So he orders his men to execute all the priests of God. Now, if you're one of those priests, you get two options. Option number one is you disobey the king and maybe you'll be the recipient of the king's anger and he's going to kill you. Or you can stand up, uh, you you can do what the king says to do. So you've got a decision at that point whether or not you're going to obey the king. Now, certain people today would come along, yeah, you've got a third option, kill the king. That's not an option, okay? That is not an option. So the king said to the guards, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But look at the servants. This is legitimate civil disobedience, if you want to use that term. This is legitimate civil disobedience. The, uh, the king is giving them a direct order to do something that is a violation of the, of the revealed will of God, the Torah, the law of God, thou shalt not murder, and especially uh, priests who are anointed by God. So the servants of the king say, no, we're not going to do it. That is legitimate civil disobedience. And they're going to suffer the consequences. Who does this remind you of? Think biblically. You look at those circumstances we've gone to uh, many times before when I've taught on this subject. And we go to Daniel. We go to Daniel chapter 1. And Daniel and his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are told that they have to eat the non-kosher, the tray food that the Babylonians are feeding everybody. And so David, very wisely, he prays about it. We're not told about that, but we know David prays about. Every, I mean, Daniel prays about everything. So Daniel goes to uh, the chief of the eunuchs and he makes a deal with him: feed us a kosher diet, and at the end of a testing period, we're going to see who's healthier, who's stronger, who does better. And at the end of the testing period, uh, uh, David and I mean Daniel and his three friends are doing better than anybody else because God is blessing them. And so he appeals to the unjust authority and he wins. Two chapters later in Daniel chapter three, we have the story of Nebuchadnezzar who builds a, this enormous idol to represent himself. And everybody in the kingdom has to bow down and worship him when the orchestra plays. And so he calls on the orchestra to play and everybody bows down to worship him except these three guys, Hananiah, Uh, Azariah and Mishael, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they refuse to bow down, and they say, well, even if you kill us, that's okay. God can save us if he will, and he may not. Uh, They trust in the Lord. They are not going to, they are going to disobey his authority, but they're not going to uh, gather, uh, conspire to uh, kill Nebuchadnezzar, throw him off his throne in an illegal manner. And so... We have those those examples in in Scripture, and this is one of those examples. The men here have the option to obey God or to obey man, and they choose to obey God, but they're not going to react. See, what happens is when you have a government or an authority or a parent or a a teacher or in any structure, and they are out of control, there are always structures within these organizations uh, in order to appeal. Now, they take time, and it may take a very long time uh, in order to see that appellate process work. For example, in the last eight years, we have seen the, a, a, a quiet change, reaction, response, let's be a better word, taking place in America. We have seen the Democrat Party that's out of control and unconstitutional lose 50 almost 1,500 seats in state legislatures in state and local elections. They've been replaced by Republicans. So that Republican majority across the states has grown. That's a positive thing, but it's taking time. And, we're, and we've are and we seen economic problems and social problems increase because doing the right thing the right way isn't fast, it isn't simple, and it may not get you what you want as fast as you want it. And so there's this process that's taken place. We've, what is it? Uh, Eleven governors We the Republican Party now has more than the Democrats. 30, I think it's 35 or 34 states. What is it? 35 states are now have Republican governors. We just need one more, and we can call a convention of the states, and then there can be a, according to, I think it's uh, uh, Section 5 of the, or Article 5 of the Constitution, and that's one of two ways to propose a constitutional amendment. Our governor Greg Abbott is all for this, and there are a number of states that are uh, behind this, and more that are getting on board. But then you the, you can you have two ways for in the Constitution to propose amendments. One is from the Congress and it goes to the states, and the other is for there to be a convention of states that will then propose amendments and then they will be voted on by the states, and two-thirds of the states have to approve it. And so if you get a conservative-controlled convention of the states, some of the things that have been going on are going to be ended, and there's going to be uh, some true reforms that take place. But that's working within the framework of the law. That is not going outside of the law in order to achieve Uh, what some people think are are the right results so these servants are on the side of those who are saying no we're not going to do the wrong thing we're going to do the right thing and so Saul then turns to Doeg and he says you turn and kill the priest of course he has no allegiance to the Mosaic law so he turns and he strikes the priests and that day he killed 85 priests men who wore the linen ephod and he kills eighty-five. This is a massacre of the priesthood, and he goes to the city of Nob, and he struck it with the edge of the sword, both men and women. He just kills everybody, and the children and infants. It's holy war against a holy God's priesthood. That's that's what he's doing. He's he's taking he's perverting holy war like Islam has done. So this is what happens at the end uh, as we come towards the end of the chapter. And then we're told about Ahimelech at the end in verse 20. Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, uh, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. So he goes to David. And he tells David what Saul has done in killing the Lord's priests in Nob. And David says to uh, uh, Abiathar, "I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul I have caused the death of all these persons." David is so sensitive; he takes responsibility because he said, "What is he thinking? I should have killed Doeg when I had the chance. I knew I couldn't trust him, and so this is my fault." And then he tells um, Ahitab, or excuse me, Abiathar, about Abiathar, stay with me. Do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. That's the role of the messianic king is to provide security and protection for his people. That's the role of any king. If you create a theology of national government, one of its primary roles is to protect people, to secure the borders, to protect the nation from criminals and from internal enemies of criminals and external enemies of Uh, That seek to destroy it. And what we have seen for years, decades, not just Democrats, but Republicans who have failed to secure the borders and to secure this nation. And that has got to stop. It has nothing to do with racism. It has nothing to do with any kind of xenophobia. It has to do with just the same basic principle the reason you and I lock our doors at night, the reason we have. Uh, alarm systems on our homes is because we want to secure our domain so that we have safety and we can protect that which is ours if you don't and you just leave everything open you know it's not going to be long before all the homeless people have trashed your house and that's what's happening in our nation So we have to apply these principles. And next week, we're going to look at Psalm 52, which is going to get us into some really interesting territory because it's it's a psalm that doesn't fit other categories. And it's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And David is basically lecturing the wicked on the occasion of what Doeg, Doeg has done. He's using that to apply doctrine to what happens to the wicked. And we'll look at that Uh, Next time, Father, thank you for this time to study uh, through this chapter, to reflect on the principles that are there, and to realize how you are orchestrating our lives, that we go through these same kinds of tests and circumstances, whether it comes from the government, business, whether it comes from our neighbors, our friends, our family, and that gives us the opportunity to apply your word, to trust in you, to do the right thing, because it's the right thing, and through that we grow and mature and we will be prepared for eternity. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.